Hello and welcome to another episode of Don't Worry, It's Not Just You. My name is Phoebe Paradise and I hope this email finds you well. Every episode, I invite an extra special guest to join me and we chat about the cool, weird, sometimes dystopian world of freelancing and small business of every kind. Each show is broken up into some very loose segments where my guest is invited to share the juicy goss and hidden truths of working in their industry. We get a keyhole view into their world and hopefully gain some perspective on the greater shift towards the ever-growing, terrifying gig economy. (laughs) And, you know, like what that looks like for regular people from all walks of life. Today's guest operates in a world that I know next to nothing about. The world of vintage retail and reselling. I learned a lot from Jackie today, uh, like how the vintage resale industry sounds kind of fucking terrifying (laughs) and intense and scary and increasingly competitive with online brands reaching a bit of a saturation point by the sounds of it. So what happens next? Only time can tell. But for now, please enjoy the company and dulcet tones of one of my funniest, hottest, most successful friends whose life, as it turns out, is just as much a comedy of errors as the rest of us, which is so relieving to hear, let me tell you. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in for episode two of the pod. Um, I hope you enjoy. Podcast host, DJ, festival and market head honcho, talented stylist and creative entrepreneur. She's a famous face around these parts, in no small part due to her hugely popular vintage streetwear brand, which Urban List once described as bound to get your coolness level ascending. (laughs) We finally cracked the code for a perpetual motion machine and guess what? It's Jacqueline Cowan. Hello, baby. Thank you so, so much for joining me. Hey, my absolute pleasure. Um, Urban List, thank you for the kind words. Wow. You'd... <laughs> Have you got some tips on how to ascend my coolness level? Um, read Urban List and um, <laughs> you and, and buy some of your shit as yeah. well. Yeah, buy my shit. Um, Yeah, look, I mean, in my efforts to dig out this embarrassing byline for you, I actually discovered that you were recently in Elle magazine's shortlist for the best places to buy vintage denim in Australia. Did you see that article? What? Yeah, dude, it came out four weeks ago. I was like digging up news and stories and articles about you. And I was like, does she know she's in Elle magazine? (laughs) No. Wow. Thank you. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Personal assistant, Phoebe Paradise. Uh, What else did you find, Digger? 
in? Uh, look, not heaps except for your SEO shit is like on point. When you Google Little J's Vintage, get this, your business pops up. Oh, which is really cool. Unlike me, Mm -hmm. when you Google Phoebe Paradise, there's a movie called Paradise starring Phoebe Cates that is the first thing that pops up. I would really love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners, people who may not know what you do. What is it that you do for a living? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, take a little sip first. Hold on. (laughs) What do I do? Well, firstly, thank you for having me, baby. Um, This is such an honour. My name is Jacqueline Cowan. Basically, unintentionally, I've kind of become a jack of all trades, some would say. For a living, I work at Reverse Garbage. I take a lot of pride in doing. A lot of brizzy people would probably know what Reverse Garbage is. But yeah, when I'm not doing that, I am an event coordinator, I guess one would say. A part of that is running markets in Brizzy twice a month at the moment. As of this year, we've been doing them twice a month. Uh, they are vintage clothing markets. Incredible. Since 2016. So I started um, a small business in October. My small business, sorry, selling secondhand clothes. At the time, it was like 100% bullshit Etsy hobby <laughs> business um, where I was just slinging my clothes like vintage Adidas Ralph Lauren because it had yeah. come to the point where I had way too much shit yeah like way too much shit and at that time Instagram wasn't necessarily a thing mm. I was drawn towards these like hip-hop dudes in Brooklyn who collected Ralph Lauren and I took note of them selling clothes and like I'm not going to sit here and pretend that they invented selling vintage clothes or that I did it's been something that would stand the test of time, you know, yeah. like selling secondhand clothes. Flea markets have been around for many, many moons. Um, but yeah, I took note of seeing these people do this and like went to Europe, was lucky enough to do a Europe trip and um, wow. yeah, and saw this other world. It's like whole new world of secondhand clothes, people like profiting off nice vintage clothes, Good not just quality like stuff. Yeah, yeah, not what you'd find at Vinnie's or they would find at the equivalent of their Vinnie's and then upsell it, do whatever they have to do to like fix it up. It's an incredible business. And I think especially in Brisbane where those who may not know Brisbane isn't necessarily super renowned for its incredible thrifting vintage culture, like as, as opposed to, you know, our like better looking well-dressed sisters in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, like I, I lived in Melbourne for a couple of years and I absolutely got like obsessed, like scrounging around through say spending all of my money on vintage moved back up to Brisbane had everything in a suitcase I swear to god in like four days where I just left it sitting in the suitcase mold it just (gasps) went moldy in the middle of summer I just like left it there it was completely on me after that moment I was like okay like that stuff just isn't really possible to wear. It's hot. It's all of the the op shops here were like pillaged with impunity. Mm. Like I couldn't find good quality stuff. And Mm. then, you know, it wasn't really until several years later when I met you and, you know, like the circles that you run in where I found this incredible subculture of vintage reselling and curation, but it really surrounds itself in streetwear. So probably not the stuff that I've ever worn, but very much kind of enmeshed in like hip hop culture and graffiti culture and all that stuff. Like super fucking cool. And like, I mean, you know, what are we talking like in terms of how many market stalls, how many like heads kind of bob in and out of combo tires uh every every second saturday every second saturday yeah yeah well yeah it's 
It was a slow start at first. Yeah. I think when you touched on before how, like, Brisbane vintage scene is only like, I don't think Brizzy was on the map for really anything six or seven years ago, apart from like the brown snake and yeah. the Broncos and shit and like being the hub of Queensland, I guess, in like a yeah. weird way, but like fighting against surface paradise kind of thing. And, you know, yeah. um, Brisbane, the, the redheaded stepchild of yeah. Australia, the, the unlove, uh, deep north, the shameful secret. Bogan, the Bogan cousin. Yeah, exactly. Brisbane. It, it um, wasn't what first came to mind when you think of what represents Australian style, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. The vintage scene, my markets have also evolved with time. I think a lot of people, whether it's understanding how amazing it is to recycle clothes and get a further understanding of sustainability and how it's better for the planet and also it's just like, it's just super fucking trendy. But with time, my markets have gone from, I think the first one I did at the garage at the petrol station was like 13, 14, 15 of us. And then um, since then, it's just trickled in. And now we've got, I think on average, 33 storeholders. Um, Outstanding. Which is great. And pre-COVID, it was loose. Like it still is. Yeah. And I'm 100% content where the markets are at. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of businesses after five, six years, what is it? What's the saying? Like a normal company or like it's tough to get through five years. But the fact that it is still afloat and like I'm, I try not to put any pressure on myself, like whether it be 200 people roll through or a thousand on a day. But yeah, look, it's, it's good. It's kind of at a point where it just does its own thing. And like, I think it's really weird because I don't often get to talk or be in a situation like this where I can talk about what I've seen in my time or what I've seen in the last four, five, six years. You know what I mean? And it's crazy. People who I would never expect to shop vintage or secondhand now do. And like predominantly I see a lot of older people and I see a lot of men, like young men, young private school men wouldn't be caught dead wearing a secondhand Tommy Hilfiger shirt. And it's like, it's actually, it's mental watching it grow, explode. I think in some ways it's really challenging fast fashion. And it is something that's timeless. Like fashion repeats itself. I think a lot of people are seeing that and understanding that. And it's been really cool to watch and really cool to be a part of. Yeah, man. Oh, it's so cool to see. And I wonder like this boom of vintage resale, how much of it actually has to do with not just people becoming more kind of socially conscious and environmentally conscious, but also just generally the quality of clothing right now has never been so bad. What's cheap, what's affordable is shine halls and wish.com. Yeah, you're laughing at me. You're like, this bitch buying clothes on wish.com. You laugh right now. Someone needs to tell Phoebe Paradise about Lil J's vintage markets and get that bitch off wish. (laughs) If someone could help me, please. Um, Yeah, I'm buying all of my like fake teeth of wish. No. Um, But yeah, I wonder how much this kind of, I don't know, renewed vintage revival. Vintage revival yeah that's it I had a girlfriend say to me they were working at uh, General Pants at the time and mm-hmm. they'd been there for many, many years. This person was getting involved in the markets and was selling her secondhand clothes and yada, yada, yada. And it was when I think like Storeroom Vintage started putting their clothes in General Pants mm. and we were just having a beer and like a yarn one day and they were like, do you understand how much like vintage is fucking over fast fashion at the moment? And I was like, good. Yeah. And I hope you feel the same. And I know that she does, but I was just like, it made me stop and think. 
if a big company like General Pants, their target market is switching from buying like new, brand new, ripped jeans and shit to actually being like, wow, I can look fresh as fuck, express myself, be dressed to the nines in vintage clothes that cost me little to nothing. Like it was, Mm -hmm. that's like the first time her managers at General Pants and whatnot were scared because they were like, all right, this is an industry of where like the coolest people in whatever you want to define that have been shopping at General Pants growing up, yada, yada, yada. And they flicked from one thing to another. And yeah, she mentioned that it was scary. And I was like, well, so it should be because it's, we should all practice like that. Like if you can play your part by buying a secondhand something, then you're doing a little bit of good. I remember when I was doing research in the lead up to opening up the store in Wynn Lane. Um, So for those who don't know, one of the, the way Jackie and I met, (laughs) we we met um, because we both owned uh, small stores in Wynn Lane. So Jackie opened up her vintage store, Lil J's Vintage, alongside the Culprit Club, like back in 2017, 18. Absolutely gorgeous store. I remember doing this research in the lead up and there were all of these figures kind of going, you know, retail's never been so shit. Foot traffic's down by like 2000%. Businesses are losing money, yada, yada, yada. But what they weren't actually taking into account, all of this data was coming from shopping centers. All of this data was coming from, yeah, your general pants, your, um, I don't know, like your uh, cotton-ons. Oh, my God. I'm really showing how long it's been since I've been in the store. Yeah, City Beach, your Supre. I'm like, what? My 2004 references, I'm like, yeah, ICE is really having trouble right now. Um, um, But, yeah, look, what, what they weren't taking into account with all this data is that people have never been spending more money on product and on on fashion retail it's just that it's actually getting diluted into vintage into small brands into etsy artisan artisan labels like all that kind of stuff it's just going into different places and those big retailers all of a sudden they've got competition but it's like an army of thousands versus like one big retailer you know there's there's no better comparison than seeing like how incredibly well your business has gone over the last few years like since I met you not just diversified your business but you've grown it and the audience has grown with you and and one of the things I did want to ask you about is when you started out Lil J's Vintage it was really specifically focused around you know streetwear brands Ralph Polo mm-hmm. The, the staples that you, that you know and love. I, I've also noticed that maybe there's been like a bit of a bit more growth into other kinds of vintage fashion as well. And I wonder, like, do you think that you get less shit from Eshes now <laughs> than you did in like 2018, 17? Is that still something that you're dealing with um holy fuck phoebe thank you for asking this question yeah like, yeah it's literally i don't think a lot of people understand that this was a thing or a problem or something that i endured and i hope um people within the industry haven't had to go through this or like had enough street cred to not get shut on by a shade yeah. like I don't know. I I spoke about this at my fifth birthday. Like, yeah, I touched on how 
it has been a bit of a roller coaster and I was saying to a mate the other day, they were talking about how they wanted to start selling out of their garage and like they've got a full setup and it's super impressive. Um, I also want to keep in mind when I'm saying this, I want the listeners to know that I've kind of like, I'm, I'm more of an events coordinator now, I think. Yeah. Um, and I would like to do more styling stuff because there are a lot of sellers and like I'll talk about how many fucking vintage sellers there are. <laughs> like we'll be getting into that. But yeah, a part of it is like, it was scary. It was one of the only in Brisbane with all due respect to the other ladies who have gone before me like I'm talking about like Kimberlou and like Lisa French they're a few years older than me and they've been doing this for their whole life like 20 30 40 years collecting vintage clothes incredible I just kind of came out of the woodworks, was friends with a lot of Eshes, was friends with a lot of writers, was friends with a lot of people who are in the hip hop scene. And like, it can be a pretty nasty underground kind of niche group of people. And in saying that, I have met some of the most beautiful people that paint trains. They're stunning. They're gorgeous. You wouldn't even pick that they're a bloody Eshe, but it comes with some really, really, really tough, rude people. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard having the storefront. It was hard, like kind of putting a brick and mortar shop like into fruition, you know what I mean? And like giving it an address and where people could come in whenever they wanted. Like as long as the shop was open, you'd never know who was coming through the door. That also sold spray paint, that sold vintage streetwear, graffiti supplies, like a bunch of stuff. I've gotten the sense from you over the years that you felt like you've had to earn your stripes. Mm, I just had to. Mum and dad have kind of always taught me to fight your own battle. Someone gives you shit. Like that's all that I know. So when these S would have a real hard, solid crack at me about how my shit was fake or that I have no fucking idea what I'm doing and, like, I haven't grown up on the streets or, like, smoking gear or whatever. And, like, I would have had a lot of time for these people and getting to know them and and hearing their stories. But it's, like, when it's immediately put back on me and I'm a fat C next Tuesday or I'm a half-stepping blah, blah, blah because they don't know how to paint a train. It's, like, what the fuck? Like, you fast-forward five years and there's so many hot babes out there, so many chicky babes, rock and polo, Tommy, blah, blah, blah blah, blah, blah. But there was a solid time in Lil J's like history where I did cop a lot of shit from people. There was online bullying. There was a lot of kind of nastiness happening. Like there there were definite issues, but it it feels like that's really dropped off, right? Like it's dropped (laughs) off. And I'm, I'd really love to get your take on why you think that might be. Well, I think, I think it's something that needs to be talked about. And if I can like talk about it and we can talk about it together, then so be it. But I literally think it may have just been the low, like the history of low life. So there's... Could you explain to the listeners what low life? Low life. L-O. The listeners, not me. I know what that is. (laughs) So it was a group of people in Brooklyn um, back in the late, late, late 80s, early 90s. They were avid collectors of Ralph Lauren and they'd steal, they'd hustle, they'd do whatever they could to own this Ralph Lauren and at the time for a lot of people with little to nothing it kind of was like a representation of the working class man and like Ralph Lauren represented the American dream and there's like so many docos on it it's actually really fascinating a lot of these guys are still collecting polo and are still doing that and and it's all about like stealing and pinching and doing what you can robbing people to own these pieces of Ralph Lauren like it really 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 got carried away a lot of people a few years ago, like a lot of essays and stuff, were like low life kind in of. In Brisbane. Yeah, in Brisbane, like <laughs> go live in Brooklyn with little to nothing and then say low life. And like, to be honest, I don't know what it was. I don't know 
whether it was because I was female um, or I was kind of on this like tyrant where I was like fucking going full steam ahead, even though people were like coming at me with shit and trying to bring me down and were quite mean in what they would say. And Mm. I'd still just be like, fuck off. And just like, I don't know if that would get to them. I think it was maybe because I literally had a fucking pussy and tits and like I owned more Ralph Lauren than them. Oh, my God. It's the same with so many different groups of people that exist, especially in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. Like you see a young writer up and coming in the graffiti world and they're a toy. They're this and that. They're giving it a fucking red hot crack for fuck's sake. And you were one of them once upon a time. Mm -hmm. So I think it was kind of just this like maybe privileged white girl coming into the scene, owning all this polo, not knowing my story whatsoever, not knowing that like I'd worked two jobs since I was like a little teenager. Do you know what I mean? Or what I could. And like, it was just this total misrepresentation of myself ripping me down. Yeah. You've come out the other side of that, having the the store, like whenever we'd go in to Win Lane, you'd just have this like gaggle of cute teenage essays hanging out of the store waiting for it to open <laughs> and like um you know yeah like at, at the garage sales and at all of your events like the support you've gotten from the no one network like it's look in a weird roundabout way which mm. is where I was getting to um 2021 I think we're seeing a lot we whether we've realized it or not I think People are a lot more accepting. I don't think you... I don't think a lot of people fall under any niche groups anymore. Do you know what I mean? There's so many individuals, like, doing their own shit, doing their own thing. Um, And I even saw that at the time. Like, when I was copying all this shit from Eshays, there were still so many people being like, fuck that. I'm going to paint a train, but I'm still going to do whatever I want and not necessarily, like, dress like that. Like opinions Um, are changing around that stuff over time. Like one thing that you and I have spoken about before is how when you started out your vintage label, there was definitely like a bunch around, but nothing like it is now. Mm. Is the vintage resale industry in a bubble right now? You know, we've, we've never seen so many people and not just businesses, but individual people starting up vintage streetwear brands or just vintage labels. Labels, you know, not just selling on Epsi, but like selling on Depop, selling through big cartel websites. They're just throwing them up, a lot of drop shipping, a lot of random stuff coming up. And I wonder, like, you you see a lot of articles that have titles like, your hoodie from 2001 is now worth $400. And my skeptical mind immediately goes to, well, something's only currently worth what it was most recently bought for could say your hoodie's worth 500 bucks but it's only worth 500 bucks when someone next buys it for 500 bucks you know what I mean and so like there's obviously price gouging you know there's all of, especially surrounding brands we we remember the like psychotic gorman do you remember that like the yes. the psycho facebook groups you need to like write a resume to like enter this gorman resale group and it's just and that's Sass and bide shit Sass like that dude like, yeah like, that was crazy in like that bubble has well and truly popped like you can't resell Gorman not that I've ever owned any because I couldn't afford it in the first place but like you couldn't resell it now for for what it was worth at cost price back then all of this vintage flipping in online spaces not just in thrift stores not just in vintage stores do you think the bubble's coming like do you think the pop is gonna happen at some point soon look I think naturally if you know me like the way that you know 
people who've been following Lil J's, like it's pretty evident that I've taken a step back from necessarily selling vintage clothes as a full-time gig or priority. Like my events, 100% now I'm like, okay, what can I do? I'm great with people. And one of the main reasons for doing that is because of how many bloody vintage resellers there are. And I'm probably half to blame for that, dude. I tell everyone, I'm like, go to Swap. Go like put your shit on Depop. Depop's a great avenue to sell your clothes. And like, imagine if I'm, I'm one person saying, that to 33 sellers plus like my extended friends imagine how many other people are encouraging each other to get on depop and it's fucked like trying to sell something on depop it's impossible almost it seems like a really really stressful corner of the internet that i've never really like even dipped a toe into i literally just asked you how to pronounce it um, Deep <laughs> is it depop or is it depop um but yeah like you know i i see this stuff happening online and i see that world and it's in the same way, like, you know, from my quote unquote background in like fashion, a million and one small fashion labels popping up, you know, try, trying to like make some cash in COVID times, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And I mean, this is kind of the what the podcast is about, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, and there's that joke in, you know, small business where like a community of small business owners are 10 people handing around the same $50 note. And I feel like possibly in vintage spaces as well, it's kind of the same thing. The people who are buying the vintage clothes as consumers are taking it and then trying to use that as a small business offering, not just to buy and wear. Yeah. You know, you've always been really, really good at predicting the future. You've got this kind of like third eye that, you know, the rest of us... (laughs) I I feel like you have a sixth sense in predicting how how these trends kind of go and should we be saving the clothing now that we have for the next cycle of vintage that happens in 10 years bro like the stuff that is being sold as vintage is the shit that I wore in high school you know showing my age a little bit it feels like what's classified as vintage like that gap is getting smaller and smaller every year well, vintage is 20 years old. That is yeah. what is defined as a vintage garment. Okay. But half the people that are flicking vintage garments aren't even 20. That's so it's like, <laughs> like, I got kicked off of Etsy six months into running Lil J's. Because Tell me about that. My items technically weren't vintage. And I was really upset by that because I was like, firstly, how would you know what's on my tag? Secondly, like the tag of the garment in itself. Secondly, how would you know? And thirdly... I'm 19. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, if, if you could report Shopify, like, I mean, I, I'm certain 90% of the vintage that's online is, like, not even passing the hands of people that run the, the stores. Not, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Like, I don't really prescribe to this idea of, like, oh, everything needs to be, like, I'm doing air quotes right now, but authentic in that way of, like, oh, you need to be, you know, checking, like, x y and z boxes in order to like function in the world as a business owner people can do whatever the fuck they want people need to be like making money but that's a moral thing though phoebes like there are so many vintage shops who are probably slinging bootleg shit selling bootleg items and are 100 fake technically speaking but we'll just get away with it because how's anyone else to know until some little cluey motherfucker comes in and is like excuse me yeah <laughs> some little some little eshes 
like checking the stitching. At just... Burberry, where is it's like yeah. receipt? <laughs> yeah, that's it. And it's and it's it's interesting because that also comes with the vintage scene as well. Like you sell something fake, you're fucked. Like you can get like fully cancelled for and there are some brands, especially in Brisbane. Um, look, I'm not gonna name names. People talk shit. I love not talking shit though. My life has become ten times better since I've stopped ripping shit on people because I feel like like if I'm with a girlfriend I'll have a fucking beer and be like look this person's being a fucking cunt but like talking about brands and shit that you don't know like anything about you don't know the people that run them it's no fact it's just like we live in a small city if someone says xyz smell like smells xyz smells and sells fake shit People get wind of that and it's just like, that's just... It's going to come back around. Yeah, and that's the reputation that these complete strangers that have no fucking idea about vintage clothing have given this brand and then that carries on. And, like, I don't know, I've heard shit about this brand and I'm just like, look, if they did sell one or two fake things, I probably did too in my time. But what I was going to say before is... I'm really stoked for people like Swap, like Sunday Social, vintage clothing secondhand resellers who have been around since I was in high school. And it's like a lot of people, I think, just like go into those shops and don't really realise the history of them. The fact that they've stayed so strong and like their growth, whether it be Sunday Social moving to Melbourne or Swap in West End, constantly like growing and renovating. And I think it's really cool. It's good to see. They will the pe- like they will be the stores and the people that will stand the test of time. They will be the vintage shops, whether the bubble happens, whether it pops, whatever happens, they will hopefully, fingers crossed for them, they will yeah. endure that. I think there is way too many vintage stores. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to know what you thought oh, about this. It's yeah. It's like- That's like it's amazing. I highly, highly, highly encourage everyone to give anything a crack. Get that bag and do what you need to to get that bag. Little bag with a dollar sign on it. Whatever the bag looks like, get it and get it how you can. But I think it's a tough economy in the vintage clothing scene. And you know what? I 100% encourage like wardrobe cleanouts at my markets. Absolutely. That's like a big part of it is that it's not specifically streetwear and sportswear. It never has been. It predominantly is because there's so many amazing sellers that sell that, but it's not that. Yeah, it's just escalated. It's kind of, it's gone from one, it's gone from nothing really to like every. (laughs) And now it's, you know, every man and his dog, for better or worse, has, you know, a vintage label. And I wonder whether like, like Depop, Etsy, whatever, like all these online stores, you know, you're throwing out a few like interesting terms here. So like when you talk about vintage, if you're having a vintage label, it has to be 20 years or less, let's say. You've got like a certain moral backbone. The idea is that if you're selling brands, you know, you're doing everything in your power to try and sell brands that are authentic. Mm-hmm. And you're also curating that to your personal tastes. And so when a small, like a a consumer, like a person starts a vintage Etsy and they start slinging whatever, it kind of creates like direct competition with people that are having to stick with these KPIs and are being put under pressure from their community to stick with all of that. It's an interesting world. It seems really cutthroat. It's wild. And then you go to Melbourne, for example, and there's so many op shops and like secondhand stores, you know what I mean? And vintage businesses. And like, 
Okay, there's two things to what I'm about to say. Firstly, every fucker that you, like, try to relate to in a big city, when you're like, oh, I actually own my own vintage store in Brisbane, they're like, oh, do you? And I'm like, oh, yeah. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) it's like, fuck you, dude. Like, I might be fucking... 23 at the time or whatever but like you're like my throne is a throne they're like your throne is a toilet (laughs) (laughs) you're from Brisbane sweetie you don't know what it's like to own a vintage shop but the second thing I was going to say to that is I remember being in this shop there were these big amazing Carhartt denim all kinds of different colors like olive maroon whatever black big denim jackets very ideal for Melbourne very ideal and I had bought one in Japan two years before And I was wearing the same thing in the shop. And I was like, all right, cool. Got this jacket for 300 yen, which at the time was like $5. Go into these shops, there's just like rows and rows and rows of these Carhartt jackets, but like like mine, but in so many different shapes and colors and sizes, all for 250 bucks plus. And I'm just like, this is what we're dealing with. I lucked out going to Japan and being in that spot at that time, random flea market in Kyoto and buying that jacket off like a sweet, sweet, sweet older Japanese man, which I'll never know his story or how old he was. It was just like pure luck that I was there. And then you got to export it to Australia. Then you put it up to 250 fucking dollars and you're like taking a risk and hoping that someone will buy one of those 50 jackets. You know what I mean? It was like risky business before everyone was getting on top of it, let alone now. I would really, I think it would be very interesting and also sad to find out like what vintage companies are doing in Sydney and Melbourne at the, at the moment. Because a lot of people that have been in the industry for years, they just rely on like having a storefront. They don't rely on online sales. They've done just fine without... Yeah. Regular shoppers, yep. tourism, all that fun stuff. Being in the heart of Melbourne and like vintage there is amazing. It's, yeah, it's a money printing machine. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know that, but just like being in smack bang in like Fitzroy or whatever and like having to adjust to that yeah would be interesting to find out in itself and also probably really 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 devastating at the same time I I wonder how much just going quickly back to the Brisbane offerings like for you know vintage clothing generally speaking like it it hasn't been that huge here historically because of like the weather You know, we've got like two weeks of the year you can really wear a jacket. I mean, this winter's been pretty good, but like for the most part, do you think that vintage clothing here is getting degraded, getting rotted and, you know, back rooms and storage units and all that kind of stuff versus like, because it feels like there's this wealth of product down Mm. south and there's, you know, it's, it's abundance. Whereas in Queensland, there's like a scarcity issue. And people tend to kind of look at vintage in Brisbane as being too expensive, too competitive, too this, that, the other. And I'm wondering whether you think it's like a scarcity issue or whether that product is literally just being taken down to Melbourne and Sydney, like where that scarcity kind of comes from. I don't know. I think it could be a combination of that. I also just think it's so fucking hot, like majority of the time. Yeah, dude. It's it's a seasonal thing. The people that come to my markets, they have the best months in winter because they can get rid of jackets, leather jackets that have like 80, 90, 100 plus dollars on them. Polyester. Polyester, everything. And then summer comes and you got to get rid of all that fucking shit. Like ASAP, you just have to have 
a base of T-shirts, like something that's going to make you dosh. It was a tough issue for you guys in the store trying to accumulate summer-friendly vintage clothing, Mm. and I wonder whether that's something that you still kind of deal with now. I mean, obviously the business structure has kind of changed. It's less about selling clothes and more about kind of facilitating the sale of them. But with your online store, like, do you still struggle to source vintage clothing for our climate? Yes. Yeah, at the moment it's tough with COVID. Like, yeah. I've been sitting on a package for 10 months, Phoebe. <laughs> oh, and babe. now there's a ban where people in America can't send packages above a particular size. Are you having a Australia. joke? Seriously? <laughs> It'll be lifted soon, but it's like this is what we're dealing with. Oh, my um, gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, I'll tell you later. It's so silly. That's so um, fun. <laughs> like, Could, I'll tell you later. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Really, and I'm sure our listeners would be really curious to peek behind the curtain if if we could like I mean you know I know you've got amazing suppliers all over the world Mm -hmm. um a few main ones that kind of help you find like the quality garments that you've got but other than your events being affected by COVID how does the chain of supply get affected by COVID for slinging vintage clothing yeah well it's that's a really interesting question All the sellers at the market somehow have been able to maintain this steady flow of clothes from all around the world. I'm like, how the fuck? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Fuck. Yeah. But there's also this other side of secondhand clothing and vintage clothing where you can buy in bulk. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed a lot of, like, I've never bought in bulk of anyone purely because I've just had buyers for me. Yeah. But it's something that I would like... 100% 100% consider. Mm. Could you explain to our listeners what the buying in bulk system is? Yeah. We're talking like a trash bag just full of random t-shirts. They're like, you yeah. get what you're given kind of thing. So it all depends on what company is selling what and what uh, reseller. Like there's a place called French Fripe um, for all the listeners. Like if you ever wanted to like start doing shit on denim or like you kind of wanted to start a patch business or something or whatever basically these companies sell big boxes of garments and you determine the size and then that determines the weight and I think it's like depends on who you're buying from but generally they offer around 75% of items will be resellable yeah in terms of like high quality can guarantee I don't know how the fuck they figure that out yeah (laughs) and then the other 25% are dregs so like any vintage op shop or anything where you get donations or where you're importing all these fucking clothes from I have no idea where they're getting them from Mm -hmm. but you'd have a lot of dregs yeah so it's just the risk that you take 75% good quality shit generic sizes that like people can fit and then like on the opposite end it might be like extra 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 small Tommy Hilfiger jacket that you'll be sitting on for six months or something that's just like what I was going to touch on in terms of that being another side of vintage wholesale and buying and like that's a whole nother industry is like selling in bulk buying in bulk I bought a box at the start of the year went to Cairns for a month came back and was like fuck it I haven't bought any vintage clothes in a while like COVID has just fully put me off all this shit like I haven't bought in bulk I'm going to order a box from my dude in Michigan because I miss him and he's great. Never met him, but we talk a lot of shit. (laughs) And by the sounds of it, I mean, like, when it comes to bulk buying, 
from what you're telling me, like a lot of it has to do with your relationship with the seller. Like if you've got a good relationship, you know, part of what makes your business good is maintaining those relationships. So they'll be giving you good stuff rather than like mothbitten shit that's going to come. Well, he's yeah. selling to me in little old Brisbane. Who the fuck else is he selling to around the world? And like, I have really enjoyed getting to know this guy over the internet. He's funny. He's just this skater dude. Like he's always like, what are you doing, cunt? And I'm like, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> but he'll just drop the C-bomb with this, yeah, like, yeah. thick, thick oh, American God. Americans accent. love it. Americans love so much, like, how loosey-goosey we are with our trucker's language. Yeah, but then he'll say it back to me and I'm like, are you fucking right, bro? Like, <laughs> what are you, what? You're what? like, the way I say it isn't the way you say it's different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I'm actually curious, like, with the bulk buying stuff, I mean, is, is there an industry in Australia Australia of people facilitating those bulk buys for places like Shag, for like, you know, those big vintage stores where like Rockstar in mm. Melbourne and like all that kind of stuff. Are there like agents that kind of help that happen or is it just like luck of the draw on like Alibaba.com or like whatever? I don't know about in Australia if there's like particular people that do do that. That's a really good career. I was going to say, like, maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, like, let's um, pivot right now. Pivot. So, anyways, now I'm an agent. And I... (laughs) Now I'm um, Little J's distribution. Um. (laughs) There's, like, Kimbra Lou, for example. Do you know Kimbra? Yeah, 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 yeah. She's Mm. great. Amazing. Told me all of her stories. Like, when Kimbra was our age, for example, they would go to these huge warehouses. I don't know if they still exist, but it'd be, like incredible places by the sounds of things and mm. you'd walk in there'd be five blokes standing at the door and they'd be like do you want a vodka Kimbra and she'd be like no I'm fine <laughs> and like just and then there'd just be piles and piles of incredible. vintage clothing and she'd just pull it all up I can smell the silverfish from here oh, like oh, just that fucking so dust oh. like dusty yeah. little bugs that story from Kimbra, like, might as well have been a hundred years ago for how much the face of that industry has changed in just, you know, since you started the store 2018, like the face of that industry has just changed. It might like 2018 might as well have been a hundred thousand years mm. ago. It really excites me though, like above all, as much as it pains me how much I've missed out on <laughs> how much amazing <laughs> vintage I could have owned or have or had played with. I really, really am a huge sucker for those stories. Like I love that. I'm also super nostalgic and like that is an era that I won't understand, but also like I am so grateful for what we have at the moment. And like I have my little bits and bobs around the place that I don't tell anyone about my little vintage havens that stay very close to my heart amazing and I'd be a fool no offense the places that sound like where Kimbra went to but would never be the same um you gotta hold that stuff close to your chest sometimes and that's like I, I don't think there's anything yucky about that if anything it's more like you you want to be able to keep like some portions of that nostalgia alive in a in, in a little way and this actually is a great segue. One thing that I really want to try and get to the heart of with this podcast, does turning your passion into your work bring you closer to that passion or does it actually create more of a distance between you and it? You know, I feel like everyone's answer would be really different, but I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are on, you know, running this business, Little Jay's 
your life is spent in and around clothing, in and around the the business of clothing, um, the culture of clothing, the creativity of clothing. Do you still love it? And do you still feel as passionate about it now? Or do you think there's been more distance created between you and it by profiting from it or by creating a business around it? To answer your question, Miss Phoebe Paradise, um, that's a weird one, but also a really good one because it's like I don't often get to stop and really like smell the roses and or think um, without sounding like an absolute wanker, but I'm going to and also I'm sure you will have plenty of people on this podcast who are in this position, but like you kind of blink and you don't even realise what you've established for yourself, like all the hard work I think it's something sometimes that I take for granted. Like it's it's just you get so stuck in the motions you don't – it's your life. Like you're doing it to feed yourself. You're also doing it predominantly because you fucking love it. Like and I think it's really important to remind yourself of things like that and moments like that and being like clearly you love it even though there may be some distance from it because now it's like a job and it's what's like paying the bills and shit. You obviously love it because if you didn't fucking love this idea that your weird brain created six years ago, why would you still be doing it? You know what I mean? I just think sometimes when you're in positions like ourselves, when you run small businesses, it's just go, 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 go. And like sometimes you have to be like, stop. This is why I love it. And, like, also I think it's totally natural for you to be like, fuck this shit. Like, how did I get myself in this position? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm the one to blame. If something doesn't go as planned or, like, if you can't be fucked running a market, it just falls on you. So, like, I think you also have to allow time and space to be like, okay, I can't have these expectations for myself forever. But to answer your question, I think doing this now has 100% brought me closer with some natural distance in saying that like I'm pretty airy-fairy most of the time and it's just like go, 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 that I'm actually fully distant of what I'm doing sometimes because I'm like that's just what you do and it's like when people come up to you and you're like, dude, you run a fucking market and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do. (laughs) So I don't know, that was a really roundabout answer but... I hear it. Like, it. you know, I I was like getting the full Jackie experience, like in the lead up to this podcast, I was listening to all of your interviews and all of your, you know, videos. No, you're like, you're so funny. It's it's absolutely perfect. You're really, really good at talking about this stuff. And one of the, the, the things that I saw as like a running theme the whole way through is that clothes is always the thing that it comes back to, like the passion for the thing that you sell, not just the thing that you do. Um, and like a deep respect for the work that you do as well. It's like, it's fucking awesome, man. It's so cool to see. I love people as well, Phoebes. I seriously, genuinely, I know I have, I get solid enjoyment out of talking to people and bringing people together. And like when in high school, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life, like I never thought that I would ever be like bringing people together from all different walks of life. But like, I always thought I wanted to run Splendor in the Grass. And then when I found an avenue where I could like not have to worry about getting too fucked or dealing with fucked up people, (laughs) but like also bringing people together under like an umbrella of like sustainability, I was just like, yeah, yeah, this is good. I'm going to run with it. It's so sick. Uh, I love you. All right, we're going to take a little break. This is a segment that I like to call Comfort Watch. Mm -hmm. 
you know, what are we consuming? I want the trash. When you come home after a long day and you're like, I don't actually have any executive function um, anymore. I need white noise, I need trash. I would love to, to hear what you've, you've brought to, to tell us about today. Big brother, baby. Um, <laughs> big brother. A lot of my comfort food, as you would call it, literally is proper shit. Like <laughs> when I get to a point where I need to just like listen to actual white noise, like I am 100% switched off. Maths, big brother, married at first sight, fucking love island, like you name it, anything <laughs> that is just proper bulk shit. Yeah, it's weird <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta ask not only do you consume Big Brother but you actually applied to become a contestant two did- years in a row oh. <laughs> so last year was really exciting 2020 um got my hair did at Dreamboat and was really excited and like fully geared up and I went into the group interview it's a weird 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 bucket list of mine like I've been lucky enough to do a lot of fun shit like I've traveled a lot I had cancer when I was 17 and that kind of just like fully changed my life in terms of like how I saw it and how I still see it to this day it's weird it's like almost been 10 years and I'm like thinking about it more now than ever Mm -hmm. in terms of just like a gratitude and like being given this second chance but like Big Brother. I want to be on Big Brother purely just to fucking do it and like go on there, set a good example for people who've been through like what I've been through, set a good example for people younger than me or Mm -hmm. like just like live that fucker, have fun, be yourself, be weird. Um, And I am like some individuals where once you get an idea in your head, you have to do it. And like it's not going away until I sit in that fucking Big Brother house and cause some mischief. I would pay good money to see it happen. And man, I mean, you got really far. The group interview. Yeah, the group interview. Was it kind of like a, have you ever applied for a job at a call center? This is what I'm picturing. People sitting in a boardroom just like, so my name's Phoebe and I like to party. (laughs) It was cool watching people step up to the plate. Like it was in this big circle with the producers on the telly. You've got 30 seconds to say who you are. Just watching all these like really, like they were sweet cute people but just getting up there being like hi I'm Jemima I'm from Bundaberg and like this is my life goal and I was like (laughs) hey I'm Jackie I love Bundy rum and like this is also a life goal of mine I guess I don't know know. you're like what she said but I drink (laughs) I actually I love public speaking like I was a -a make-a-wish young ambassador when I got out of having chemo and like for some reason you put me in a scenario like a big brother interview and I black out I don't know what I'm talking about like they're like who are you and I'm like I'm Jackie um I pissed the bed um and um I oh dude I really, truly know that feeling. As someone who's less good in those situations, the few times that I've done public speaking, you come out the other side of it and you're like, I could have said anything. I could have said literally anything. You could tell me and I'd be like, okay. I'm Like literally video clips or it didn't happen because yeah. I can't tell you what the fuck I just said. We had a, I had another interview and it was with one of the producers and like one-on-one the lady was like, so would you mind explaining why you didn't get on last year? And I was like, okay, well, I think one of my greatest strengths in like one of the activities that we had to do, I mentioned that I had cancer 
and to somebody in the waiting room and then I lost one of the activities and one of the guys got up and was like I would evict you straight away because you're a cancer survivor and like you know you've been through shit you know how to fight you're like a silent survivor and I was like motherfucker so then when I had this interview this year I was like can tell me mate you're the one (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're like sorry this guy was playing 4d chess I didn't realize people's brains worked that way yeah I just said it as like a little side thing (laughs) (laughs) some of those people at that interview like fuck so there was maybe 14 of us Uh and um yeah, there was like a few dads, um, few mums. There was like the chick Jemima. I don't know her real name, but let's go Jemima from Bundaberg. There was like two Instagram influencers and they were like, I haven't watched Big Brother since I was like four. And like the producer was like, I beg your pardon. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but she was right. honest. Yeah, yeah. She was honest. And um, and then there was this other girl that was <laughs> on there. We were like talking in the waiting room. They should have filmed that shit because that's where like all the magic happens. Like everyone off camera just talking shit. Imagine, yeah. And I think I was like, oh fuck yeah, or something. And then this chick just like fully took wind of the fact that I like swore, and she was like, fuck yeah, and just like got (laughs) fully (laughs) elevated. And we're like in the fucking room with the producer, and she's like, you know what? Like I was like, fuck it, like fuck it, I'm gonna come on fucking Big Brother, fucking this, fucking that, and it's like, choose your audience baby girl like it was so (laughs) and then the best of all so they ask you if you've been on a reality tv show before and this particular person had been on this (laughs) renovation show 20 years ago where you go to um fiji and like it's like you get paired up with some random person (laughs) sounds amazing by the way and um you get to renovate a house in fiji and it never got aired And then she was like, yeah, after I got on the show, I proceeded to apply for Big Brother and I made it to the top um, 12. And the producer was sitting there on this big screen in front of all of us. And the producer was like, "Um, I'm sorry, love, but like Big Brother didn't exist 20 years ago. (laughs) This lady was like, I swear to God, I was on it. (laughs) The producer was like... No. And it was the most awkward fucking thing. Like just sitting there being like, oh, my God. God, oh Shushy my mouth, God, babe! <laughs> like this calls into question whether the first reality show actually existed, or did she just strand herself in Fiji and was like, "Yeah, there's cameras everywhere. There's hidden cameras everywhere, like Literally. I'm on television right now." <laughs> One point, I remember her like looking at the group. You had to run into the circle and say some fucking weird thing, whatever. And she like walked in, said something, and then followed it up with like, "I'm a bit crazy, but it's not like I'm gonna murder." everyone in the house or anything <laughs> and I think I was just sitting there and like <laughs> holy fuck <laughs> like meanwhile you're like boiling with anxiety thinking you've said something wrong <laughs> Phoebe I was like holy fuck I wish like every person I knew could be in this room right now just witnessing Oh, that's the show. That's what the show should be. Like when they don't think the cameras are rolling. Fuck me. That's incredible. Next year. Next year, maybe. I'm calling it. Next year. I'm 100% calling it. Honestly, Phoebe. We're manifesting today. Everyone listening, please manifest. Um, Jackie Big Brother 2022. (laughs) Um, All right. So. Final um, segment of the night called What's My Rate? 
Let's Get Down to Business. This is the only podcast in the world that truly values not only the time and expertise of our guests, um, but also their presence. And as such, each guest gets paid for their appearance on the show. There's only one hitch. It's up to you, the guest, to decide how they get paid. Don't worry, it's not just you uses the industry standard compensation types. We're talking exposure, trade, money, or a slab of Forex gold. <laughs> Jackie Cowan, how would you like to get paid for today's show? Oh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> like, hmm. Slabuccino, um, maybe. I just want to, can we negotiate this a little bit? Of course we can. You ready for this? What's, <laughs> what's, what does the exposure look like, Phoebe? Um, well, so this is a bit of a choose your own adventure segment. So it's uh, no matter what you choose, it's a bit of a lucky dip. Um, the only way you know exactly what you're getting, much like being a freelancer, is if you choose the slab of gold. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Every, everything else is mystery box. I mean, baby, we're freelancers. There's there's no guarantees here. Oh, well, I'm definitely not going to take the money. <laughs> not because I don't need it, just because I don't want to know my value. <laughs> I don't want you to put a dollar figure on this shit. <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck. Um, oh, I did, when we spoke about this previously, I did say a 4X slab. I know it's what how I want to get paid. And it's how I want to pay you, babe. I'm just a sticky beak. Let's like go I'm for like a sure thing. Yeah, okay. Well, you know I'm gonna drink it and enjoy it and love it and like you don't have to give me for it. And it's slab. gonna no no no. This is like this is part of the job. It is literally my obligation. Thank you, Phoebe. A slab of 4X gold you shall have, baby. I'm by a Dan Murphy's, so it arrives at your house. Oh, yeah. Thank you, sweet angel. <laughs> You're welcome. Jackie Cowan, um, incredible second ever guest on Don't Worry It's Not Just You. Listen, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot today. Thank you so, so much for being on the show today. You're absolute angel. Um, this was so much fun to talk to you. I mean, it's always fun to talk to you, but it's nice to do it, you know, with a microphone in front of your face as well. Absolutely, Absolutely baby. love it. Um, before we go, do you have anything you'd like to plug um, and also, do you have any parting words of, um, you know, billionaire grind set, um, advice for us to, uh, to leave with, to go out on with the music? Billionaire's advice. Okay. So firstly, um, if I'm going to plug anything is go suss out Lil J's vintage markets. Um, that's my baby and Lil J's vintage. If you ever want to utilize my wardrobe, let me know. It's free for most people, unless it's a big gig, <laughs> then I charge. Sorry. <laughs> me being like, then you have to pay. Um, <laughs> basically, billionaire quote. You've got one life. Live the fucker. Do it well. Try not to regret shit. You heard it here first, guys. Jackie Cowan, thank you so much, darling. Guys, uh, thank you so, so much for listening. My name is Phoebe Paradise. Episode two of Don't Worry, It's Not Just You. I love you. <laughs> Good. Bye.